We'll read verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until then, or until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So this evening we come to this letter of our Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Thyatira. We've already seen his letter to the church at Ephesus. The Loveless Church, we looked at his letter to the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, and then his letter to the church at Pergamum, the compromised church. And so perhaps in your Bible there's a heading there, and you'll see that the church at Thyatira is the corrupt church. And so Jesus writes this letter to these Christians at that place in Thyatira. Let me begin by saying a few words about this city and the church therein. Uh, One has said this. He wrote the longest, that this letter is in fact the longest of the seven letters. And it is addressed to a church in the least important of the seven cities. That's a matter of perspective. Uh, Even though it may have been the least important city among the seven cities in which these seven churches resided, Uh, It was a town of commerce. It was at a crossroads. And uh, it was a commercial city, therefore. It was known for its processing of wool, for its dyeing of various materials. Perhaps you will remember in the book of Acts, uh, Lydia, and how she was converted to the Lord. She was a dyer of purple. And uh, she was Lydia of Thyatira. And uh, this was probably written later uh, than the time in which we find her mentioned in the book of Acts. And because it was this city of trade with all of these various workers of wool, the dyers, tanners, and so forth, potters, um, in that day and time, 
They had a guild society. We could call it that today, kind of a trade society. And if you wanted to be successful, if you wanted to get ahead in life, you had to be a part, if you were a worker in that trade, you had to be a part of such a guild. And in those days, the guilds or those trade societies were associated with various false gods. And they were seen as guardian gods. And uh, if they were to receive any work and profit and food, then that success was attributed to their false guardian gods. In fact, they would often have um, feasts associated with this, and they would sacrifice to their false god. They would eat the food that was sacrificed to those false gods. And then after those festivals were completed, or at least after the food was gone, uh, they would engage in even the, the more fun aspect of their worship. In fact, they would do things unmentionable, uh, things we shouldn't even mention in public this evening. And uh, for one not to become a part of that guild and not to participate in those festivals, eating things sacrificed uh, to uh, false gods, and not participating into the lascivious behaviors associated with those festivals. One, if they did not participate in that, they would be ostracized, even persecuted. And it often would mean for that person financial hardship, perhaps starvation. So as you think about the city where the church was, to whom Christ wrote this letter, uh, you can see the dilemma for the Christian. Would the Christian, in fact, be a part of that working trader's guild and participate in those festivals in order to make money? That was indeed a temptation, a dilemma. Now, as we read through our text, you saw Jesus refer to that woman, Jezebel. And there's a reason. We'll look at that in just a moment. But uh, she is one Jesus calls here... um, Well, he says that she calls herself a prophetess. She is a false prophet. She seduces the people of God or those who say that they are his servants. And he says there to teach and seduce my servants in verse 20. And so the idea is that she probably uh, taught something like this. You know, it's it's actually it's okay if if we participate in these things, these festivities, if we eat uh, these foods sacrificed to idols, if we participate even in the uh, festivities afterwards. After all, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, you had to put food on the table. And so then the question is, what would Jesus say to such a church who has a Jezebel such as this in their midst? That's what's happening. That's what he's writing about here in this letter. So notice how he opens the letter. In uh, verse 18, it says, These things says the Son of God. He's reminding them of his identity, uh, his deity. And then he says, Who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass? This points all the way back to Daniel chapter 10. Where the Son of Man there, the one uh, pictured as the Lord Jesus Christ, 
has these eyes and these brass feet, these feet of metal. And one old commentator um, said this about what is going on in Daniel 10, uh, to which Jesus refers here in this letter to Thyatira. He said this, um, speaking of Christ, he says that uh, his arms and his feet alike in color uh, are likened to polished brass, denoting his great strength for action, his stability and firmness, and the glory of his power in trampling upon his enemies and subduing them, especially as displayed in the redemption of his people when his own arm wrought salvation for them. So what is Jesus getting at here when he talks about this uh, self-identification with these eyes and these feet? I think here is a, it's a picture of Christ the judge. Revelation will talk about Christ as the judge further later in this book, but that's the picture. And in typical fashion, our Lord, even though he has something very startling and negative to say to them, he starts off on a positive note. He, he notes that even uh, they have grown spiritually. In verse 19, he says, I know your works. He notes their love. They're kind to others. They have affection for others. They love God and they're loving others, serving others. He notes their service, their ministry. He notes their faith, their trusting in God. They themselves, the ones to whom he's speaking at this moment, they keep the faith and he notes their patience. And he says this, as for your works, the last are more than the first. So they're increasing in their service to God. And so when you consider all of these things, what is there that's negative here? What is the problem? What is it that they have done? It's, it's not so much what they have done, it's what they have not done. That's the issue. And so then he begins in verse 20 with the rebuke. And the rebuke to them is for what they have not done. As I mentioned earlier in the service, there are two aspects of sin, two classifications we sometimes use for sin. Sins of commission, sins of omission. If God says, do not do something, He draws a line in the sand as it were. Don't pass here. You shall not murder. And if someone murders, they pass that line, they transgress. That's a transgression, that's a sin of commission. If God says, you shall love me with all your heart, and we don't do it, that's a sin of omission. Well, the sin here is a sin of omission. So in verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So, if she, were, if she did in fact teach formally God's people, that's already a violation of Scripture. What the Apostle Paul laid down in 1 Timothy 2.12 where he says concerning the church, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. It's not because men are better. 
It's because that's the way God has arranged things and how he has set it up. And by the way, it's not based on some cultural item located to some geographical area in space and time way back in Paul's day. Because Paul then in 1 Timothy bases that on what? Creation. And what happened immediately after he created Adam and Eve, he says, well, it wasn't Adam who was seduced, it was the woman. And so that's the way it is to be in the church of Jesus Christ. And we could preach a whole other sermon on that. But for now, let me just note that there are occasions where women may teach. They teach the older women, teach the younger women. Uh, Timothy's grandmother taught him the scriptures as a young child, probably a young man. But women are not to teach officially in the church of Jesus Christ. They may not hold office and so forth. But there's more than that going on as we read here in the text. Uh, She is seducing the servants of Christ. And uh, let me just ask you a question. Who do you think is behind this seduction? Satan, as we've seen already in Revelation. And Paul's letter to Timothy, again, he talks about in 1 Timothy 4.1, the doctrine of demons. And did you catch what Jesus said a little later there, verse 24? He says, uh, To you and to the rest I say in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, as, or who have not known the, quote, depths of Satan, as they say. And so this is almost a, a mirror, a perverted, twisted mirror of knowing the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit teaches us the deep things of God. And uh, some read this phrase here, the depths of Satan, and conclude that one of the things perhaps this woman was saying is that, uh, you know, if you really want to know your enemy, you've, you've got to, to become a part of what is going on, and so they wanted to know the deep things of Satan. But nevertheless, the point is she is seducing the servants of our Lord Jesus. And so then he calls her Jezebel. Well, what's that about? You know, it's been said that uh, for those who do not know their history, they're destined to repeat it. And ironically, it's debated as to who coined that phrase. But um, I think there's truth in that because... Uh, on the one hand, if, we, if we're ignorant of certain circumstances in the past, then uh, when those circumstances or similar circumstances uh, appear before us in life, we don't know what the end result was, and therefore we don't have wisdom to know what to do in our present circumstance. There's that. But even though some people know their history, they do repeat it, because really what we do is a matter of the will. We may know, I know I did this as a kid. I knew that if I were going to disobey my parents and I got caught, I would get in trouble. Guess what? I did it anyway. But nevertheless, we need to know our history and to understand Revelation. We need to know Old Testament history. We've already appealed to Daniel tonight. Well, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 19, this woman Jezebel, queen, Uh, We learn about her there. We won't turn there tonight, but just know that it was Jezebel, this wicked woman in the Old Testament, who persuaded her husband, Ahab, and Israel to worship the Baals and to commit the acts involved with that often sexual immorality. She killed the prophets of God. Remember, Elijah ran for his life until the Lord halted him at the mountain in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. 
Uh, she had um, Naboth murdered. So she was a wicked woman. But the point here, Jesus is equating this woman to Jezebel in the Old Testament. And it didn't end well for Jezebel, if you remember. Um, and so why does he do that? Well, this woman, as we've seen, is teaching God's people. Seducing God's people. False doctrine is seduction. At least for those who believe false doctrine. And uh, she also teaches that it is okay to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now when he mentions uh, sexual immorality here, the Greek word, by the way, is porneia. At least that's the noun form of what is under the Greek, under the English here in the Greek. And then he's talking about eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, this whole issue of eating things sacrificed to idols has come up elsewhere in Scripture. Acts 15, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10. In Romans 14, Paul says, basically says, look, it's just meat. Um, however, Romans 14, 21, it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So it's going to cause your brother to stumble if you're eating that meat that was sacrificed before you bought it at the market. If it's going to cause your brother to stumble, don't eat it. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, um, basically the summary of the teaching there is you are not to participate in that worship where the animals are sacrificed. You know, what, what does a harlot have in common with Christ? And uh, do you not know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul goes on to teach that as well. And so what was this woman teaching? Well, putting the pieces together, perhaps it went something like this, as I've already alluded to it earlier. Um, Maybe she would say something like Paul said, but she took it too far. We need to be all things to all men. We need to get into these guilds. We need to win them to the Lord. And uh, after all, you know, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. And so that's what we have to do. Just the, and maybe, you know, she claimed to be a prophet as she did. Maybe she would say, well, the Lord told me. The Lord showed me. And so I'm here to tell you this. Well, we see here then that uh, Christ, He soberingly... Uh, utters these words and equates this woman with the Old Testament Jezebel. So again, the temptation is there for Christians to heed what she said, to justify it in their own minds, and to do it. There's the flesh, but there's also fear. There's also little faith, a lack of faith and trust in God that He would provide some other way. And uh, you know, in our day and time, you might not yet get the invitation to go to some false god temple worship where you eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and have the, the disgusting events afterwards. But there has been pressure already in our own nation uh, about resisting evil um, before cancel culture really came up to the surface more recently. You'll remember Jack Phillips, I think he's in Colorado, the baker who refused uh, to bake a cake for a homosexual couple for their, quote, wedding. 
and he faced uh, really insurmountable uh, fines and so forth with his business. They took him to court, and it took it was drawn out, and uh, he did gain the victory, a partial victory, and even as recent as last year, he was still battling this out there. Well, nowadays, with social media just being everywhere, cancel culture happens broadly, and it happens quickly. People dox you. They post your information online. Then you get blackballed. Then you can't find yourself a job because people can look at your history online because you stood for the truth. You said something right, but you, you did what you're not supposed to do in our society. This past week, I was uh, reading about a news story. You know, there's a transgender. He's a guy. He identifies as a woman at the University of Pennsylvania. He's on the women's swim team. He's crushing all the records. He was like last as a, as a guy, or four, four, you know, like the 400th in place collegiately. And, um, you know, these, these girls who are on the swim team, they practiced all their lives. They want to get ahead. They want to advance. They can't beat this guy with long hair. And uh, so... They want to say something, but the climate is as such where they know if they say something, they're going to get canceled. And so their parents even are afraid to say things. Uh, they've said things anonymously. That you can't speak the truth. And uh, I know some of you, when it comes to this issue at your workplace and corp, the corporate world, you, you can face this in one form or another to one degree or another. And uh, maybe someone would say, well, Kevin, that's easy for you. You get paid to speak the truth. And in fact, if you don't, there's going to be problems for you, right? That's fair enough. When I thought about this, what if something were to happen to me? I don't have Aflac. Um, but what if something were to happen to me where I, I could no longer preach? And serve as pastor. It could be health. Maybe I'd do something stupid, God forbid. Um, people could look my record. I mean, I got all these sermons out there now and written things and so forth and I could get canceled in the future for something I, I said, you know, 10 years prior. And so the temptation is real, even, even today. And so, what does Jesus say? I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself prophetess, to do these things. It wasn't because of something they did actively. It was because they allowed her to exist and teach in the church those things. So the question is, would Jesus, would he just, would he let this one slide? What does Jesus think about this? What would he do? Well, we next see, beginning verse 21, uh, his pronouncement of judgment upon the unrepentant. So in verse 21, he lets them know, I gave her time to repent. Now, I don't know exactly how Jesus warned her, how Jesus urged her to repent, but he did in some way. Maybe he sent one of his prophets to her. Uh, but she didn't. He gave her time to repent. It says that there in verse 21. In verse 22, he says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. 
And so you need to understand here, number one, repentance is a glorious thing. As I've said, let's, let's not minimize the gift of repentance that God gives to us. Jesus says in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. He says that to His disciples, you know, walking down the way. And it's the gift of God, 2 Timothy 2 tells us. And, uh, you know, I have sinned, you have sinned, we sin in thought, word, and deed daily. And so to repent of that is glorious. And let us understand that He's given them time to do that, to confess it and turn from it and turn unto God and obedience to Him. But he also says something there in verse 23. He's not only going to cast her into his sick bed and those who engage in those things with her, he says in verse 23, I, Jesus is emphatic, by the way, in this, this passage. He, before he really tells us what he's going to do, he, he wants them to know, yes, I am saying this. Yes, I am going to do it. I myself will do these things. Um, Verse 23, I will kill her children, just in case we don't get it, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. And so remember that judgment and discipline always is to the glory of God. It's to the glory of Christ, as He indicates here. And you say, well, is He talking about this woman's children? I don't know. Possibly. Some people see this woman, if her name was Jezebel, you know, that's, that's debatable. And then um, maybe Jesus is just referring to her as a Jezebel. Then He says He's going to you know, do this to her children. I'll kill her children with death. Is he talking about her physical, begotten, literal children? Or is he talking about her disciples? Probably the latter, but I wouldn't rule out the former. Could be both, could be either. And you say, well, is that a little harsh, Kevin? Does Jesus really do that? Has he done that? Well, for us to ask this question indicates our understanding of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. I was talking with someone recently, and they were talking about the problem of evil and so forth. And you know, the question is not so much, how could God allow this to happen? The question is, why do any of us live? The wages of sin is death. You know, if you've seen that, video online, that R.C. Sproul video, that's one of those what's wrong with you people issues. And uh, it indicates that. But yes, God has done things like this. In Leviticus 10, there's Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire, fire that God had not commanded. And so they were killed. God killed them. In in, um, 2 Kings chapter 2, there's the prophet Elijah, he's, or Elisha. He's going out to Bethel and these kids rush out and they say, go up there, baldy, bald head. You know, they were mocking the prophet of God. They were mocking God because that was God's man, the man of God. They didn't esteem the word of God. And so what did God do? Well, 
The prophet called a curse on him, and then immediately two, I think it was female bears, came out and devoured, it says, 42 of the boys. But that was the Old Testament. Well, has God changed? No. In Acts chapter 5, there's Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And uh, in succession, boom, there they go. They're dead. Well, do you think God got a hold of the church? Did he get the church's attention in that day, in that society? Yes. That's the point here. Jesus says um, he's going to do this that they will know that it is he who searches the minds and the hearts. We could go on and talk about 1 Corinthians 11. Those who, you know, they, they um, had a low view, a flippant view of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Some, because of that, they were getting drunk there. They, they were sick. Others were asleep, which means they were dead. And we have to understand the severity of sin, the seriousness of this sin among God's people in the church that Jesus calls the saints that are the holy ones. And uh, Jesus, again, has been patient, merciful, giving them time to repent. And we have to understand that what we do now matters forever, living in light of eternity and the judgment. And uh, we see here then that right doctrine leads to right living. You know, in Paul's epistles, he often spends a large portion of his letters with teaching. Sound doctrine, good doctrine, healthy doctrine. Then he talks about application. Well, we see here the destructive nature of false teaching. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.17, he calls false doctrine gain green because false doctrine is a disease it eats away at the health of a church and can kill a church and so I remind the leaders here Providence those who are here and who are not uh, we need to know what is being taught you need to examine what I'm teaching with the word of God with our doctrinal standards and so forth and keep an open eye and open ear and be discerning. And that goes for all of us. We're not to be led astray, but we're to be discerning, as Paul says to the Thessalonians as well. Thankfully, the letter doesn't end here. This is sobering. It should wake us up. It should make us be thinking about the nature of God, His holiness, uh, as well as His grace and mercy. But as we see here, Jesus has this promise for those who overcome. And these promises are sown through this book of Revelation. Verse 26, he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, or until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So what is he saying here? Um... Well, in verse 25, I want to skip that as well. Let me back up to verse 24. To those who have not known the depths of Satan, I will put on you no other burden. So we have to understand, the reason I mentioned that right now is because the church is a mixture. 
of those who profess the true religion and those who profess and possess the true religion, those who have saving faith. Um, Not all Israel is Israel. There are those who are in the visible church who are not part of the invisible church, as we sometimes say. Now, he does say in verse 25, he commands them to hold fast what they have, those things that are good. Uh, The implication here is to deal with this problem, to deal with this woman. By the way, it's because they have it that he's going to come and he's going to deal with it himself and his providence. And then the promise to those who overcome in verse 26, I will give to them, he says, that's to us today even, the power or authority over the nations. And so he promises that for the overcomers, they will reign with Christ. If you look at verse 27, he bases this on the second psalm. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received from my Father. And so what's Jesus saying here? Um, Matthew Henry says, well, either he's alluding to the reign of the believers during the millennium, and that's talked about in Revelation 20 and verse 4. And that kind of opens up a whole other discussion about the millennium. When is that? I think we're in the millennium right now. It's not a literal thousand years. It's a long time between the first and second advent of our Lord. Or, maybe not that reign, but the reign at the last day inaugurated, inaugurated by the second coming of Christ. Um, the reign of Christians at the time of the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. And Jesus elsewhere in Matthew 19, he promises this. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul says, you know, for those who are taking each other to court, do you not know uh, that the saints will judge the world? And this is repeated again in Revelation 22. In verse 5 where it says, We shall reign with Him forever and ever. I think probably it's referring here to the Day of Judgment uh, because of the context, because of His use of the second psalm which talks about the Day of Judgment um, ushered in by the Messiah. Jesus is saying we will participate in some way in the judgment at the last day. And as one said, the prospect of such a reversal of their present experience, persecution and so forth, the prospect of such a reversal of their present experience of oppression and persecution would be a contrast or a constant encouragement for suffering Christians. In other words, when we are persecuted and when that is in the air, Think about what lies ahead for us, Christian. We shall reign with Christ over the nations. We shall judge with the Lord Jesus in some way, even over the angels. And those who never come to saving faith in Christ. In some way, that should cause us, I think, to pity unbelievers because of what lies ahead for them if they themselves do not repent. Well, in verse 28, he says as well to the overcomer, I will give him 
the morning star. What is that? Chapter 21 and verse 7, Jesus Himself is the morning star. And so once again, as Jesus promised and encouraged these Christians at Thyatira, as He does in our day, and as He will for those Christians who come after us, He encourages Christians to persevere in their faith. And to those who persevere, we shall get Jesus Himself. And that is glorious. That is why we were made. We were created for God. And even though we've fallen with Adam, we've been restored through the redemption that is in Christ. And we'll spend eternity with Him in the new heavens and new earth. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we, we hear these words of our Savior and, and perhaps we are a little hesitant uh, to receive them. We pray, Lord, that You would give us understanding and a willing heart. Help us not only to be sober-minded, but to think about Your grace, Your mercy, and the prospect of persevering unto the end, the end of our lives or until Jesus comes back, whichever occurs first. And that glorious picture that we have even at the end of the Bible, the new heavens and new earth, where you come down and dwell with us, your people, forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.